0: So good afternoon and welcome to Agility at Work, One Step Ahead. I'm Kim Leary, and I'm here with co-host Mike Wheeler. Hi, Kim. How are you doing? Doing well on this November afternoon. We're going to hear about dogs as we talk to
1: Christine Exley and also about philanthropy and how to um, get a yes when you make an ask if you're trying to raise money for a good purpose. So, Christine, great that you could join Kim Leary and me this afternoon. You have do so many interesting things. I hope we can talk about two different things today. Um, probably close with your startup that really took off, and you could pat yourself on the back and pat the puppies on the, on the back, too. But first, I, I'm curious, and I, I hope that we're all interested in Uh, what you can tell us about philanthropy. Specifically, I'm used to being pitched with a number of inquiries where they're trying to build a relationship and you go through a number of stages before somebody makes an ask. You've done some research that suggests at least that a request out of the blue is more effective. That's not what most people do, is it?
2: I think, I think you are very correct uh, that most requests are not out of the blue. If for no other reason, then it's difficult not to see a request coming. When you receive an email from a charity, when you see a solicitor on your front doorsteps, when you receive a letter in the mail, you know they're going to be asking you for money.
0: So no surprise there.
2: No surprise there. And one of the things that we also know from the, this literature is most people delete the emails They're keen not to answer the door, and they'll throw away the letter before even opening it, which makes it difficult for charities to reach out to individuals who might be willing to support
1: them. I wonder how many people open letters where there's no return address. I I save myself some seconds, not minutes or hours, Mm -hmm. a day by pitching those without even cracking them open. But they must think if there's a return address on that that suggests it's um, a charity, that's more likely to be thrown away than something that's mysterious and anonymous.
2: That, that certainly could be. So there's more, there's better data around what people do with emails than what they do with uh, letters, per se. But it's certainly the case, and you see this not only in the nonprofit world, but in the for-profit world, that people quickly delete emails often before even opening them, yeah.
0: Right, so in the subject line, it's kind of like a signal.
2: Exactly. You know what's going on.
0: So what then is a surprise ask?
2: Well, so first, it's difficult to get to a surprise ask right? for exactly these reasons that that we're doing. But one of the reasons that we might think a surprise ask is useful is when I know someone's about to ask me for a donation, or perhaps I know that a colleague is about to ask me uh, for a favor, if I know that in advance, that's going to give me some time to find a way to say no gracefully or maybe find a way to say no uh, in a manner that I feel okay saying no with. The benefit of a surprise ask is if individuals are looking for excuses to say no, it might be more difficult to come up with those excuses
1: in the moment. So you're suggesting that fundraisers just walk around the streets and tap somebody on the shoulder? (laughs) What's the technique, Christine?
2: Absolutely not. Uh, I I would be surprised uh, if that form of a surprise worked. Uh, so the, what we did uh, to create an, a setting where we could examine whether or not a surprise asked work is we created a voting contest. You've perhaps seen some of these online where it says vote for your favorite charity. Yes. Whichever charity receives the most votes is going to win some large prize. So we held one of these contests. We were able to attract individuals who are interested in supporting a charity, but they came there to vote for the charity, not necessarily to give to the charity. What this allowed us to do is at the end, after they had cast their vote for a specific charity, we could surprise them with a donation request or not. Uh, So in one condition, we told them from the very beginning, at the end, after you vote for the charity, that that is your favorite. We're going to ask you to give money to this charity. We hope you contribute. In another case, we just didn't have that sentence. So when they received the end or the final screen, after voting for the charity, a surprise ask appeared. And this is where we were able to document our effect that in this, in this context, having the surprise ask was actually quite helpful in terms of generating more leads. Mm-hmm.
1: And this was because people weren't primed to say no nicely or otherwise?
2: That is uh, one of our interpretations. So we can't unfortunately get into the psychological drivers in this setting, uh, but it's certainly consistent with this idea that if you don't have time uh, to develop these excuses not to give, you're more keen, keen to give.
0: So I wonder how long a surprise can be a surprise as charities and philanthropy perhaps adopts this so that there would be uh, that surprise ask on a regular basis.
2: Absolutely. It would, and probably, probably not very long if everyone started to do it, right? It's probably the same reason charities can no longer just send you letters around Christmas mm-hmm. uh, without you expecting to be asked to give or emails. But it does speak to this notion, I think, more broadly of can you have more interactions with supporters that aren't around just asking them to give? but are instead around something else, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps getting their input on the organization themselves, some event, something else, that can often be a warmer way to get people in the door as opposed to you're saying, just come in the door because I want
1: your money. I like that interpretation, so let me sign on to it. You also could say it's a way of lulling people into complacency and then, bang, here's the ask. Mm
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sure, (laughs) yes. (laughs) I don't mean to be too (laughs) cynical, but... (laughs) I think there's another story here though which maybe is that uh, people are looking for new ways to connect and when they we default into a, an expectation it just feels like too routinized and absolutely as you're inviting people to either think about a donation or to offer some other kind of feedback to an organization it actually is a new channel potentially that's right. To relate. You know, I'm
1: looking right. over at, at you, Kim, and then across the table is Christine. She's played both sides of the street in the sense that she's studied this sort of thing. But with Wagaroo, you actually created a not-for-profit where there is a donation element that's sort of a twist in the, in the story. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of Wagaroo, the problem that it solved, and ultimately a happy ending?
2: so wagaroo is a startup that i co-founded um we've actually ceased ceased to exist which is a good thing in the nonprofit world but we Mm -hmm. can loop back to that uh but at the at the time it was an organization that helped to match individuals uh, who are looking for dogs uh, with dogs in needs of homes
1: you've come here from stanford several years ago down the hall from your present office al roth was there. Al Roth got sick of New England weather and moved (laughs) west. Uh, Thank you for coming this way. I think in the long run, we're likely to get the better deal here. But Al got a lot of notoriety and a Nobel Prize for his work, including his work on the markets, if you will, for kidney transplants. And here you're doing finding... People with pets that they must give up and um, and people who who need to care for and love a dog. Similar kind of system you were setting up or or how did your, it's not dog sharing. That's another possibility, wouldn't it? You had a dog on <laughs> weekends and somebody else care for it during the week. What what did Wagaroo You know Wagaroo actually do?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So first, I'll say it's a, it's no coincidence this uh, connection you brought up with Al Roth. Uh, so he was also on my committee during my graduate studies at Stanford University, and certainly was a big inspiration to this work that I pursued with Wagaroo. I didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> lucky, lucky
1: you. <laughs> Great
0: yes, guy. And, you
2: know, and he's the one who sent who sent me this way after after graduating. To a large to a large degree but the inspiration uh, for for Wagaroo or the pet market is similar I think to Al's inspiration for the kidney market in that there's a lot of inefficiencies that prevent transactions that we think might be really helpful to individuals and we were trying to counter some of those inefficiencies
0: and you know if we look at that through an adaptive leadership lens I think Figuring out who is to get a kidney and maybe who's to get a dog uh, Is a species of a wicked problem or at least it can be because they're very different ideas that different people have About Absolutely. what should take place.
1: Well, but one of the problems that Al solved is If I needed a kidney there might be people in my family on certain days at least who'd be willing to make a donation But there's not a match So then I'm kind of looking for somebody in that way, but if you organize the market Maybe there is somebody else in a similar situation. And there can be a cross match. And last I knew, and I maybe about, he was up to maybe eight pairs or something of that sort. There are, actually are technical things that make this difficult because it's serious surgery and things have to happen in a smooth and coordinated way.
0: Right. That's where the challenges come into play. If, even if someone is willing, there are questions about whether that's, uh, they're entering into that in an informed way. Absolutely. But
1: I would, and we'll get to some other stuff here, but the canine market, if you will, and you're the economist, so I'm using that word, strikes me as somewhat different. I mean, it's not, a, it's not matching in the same way. So, so what was Wagaroo able to do that got dogs in, in the right hands?
2: Yeah, so absolutely different in many ways. This is undeniable. Uh, Some of the the problems that are pervasive in both of these markets are common. So for instance, high search cost. It can be really difficult to find the right dog for your family. Part of that is because dogs are very heterogeneous. We have really small dogs. We have really large dogs. We have dogs that like to sit on the couch, dogs (laughs) that like to play ball. I have have... one of
0: those on the couch. (laughs) On the couch.
2: Those are great. So there's a lot of moving pieces that make it difficult to find just exactly the right dog for your family. At the same time, there is a lot of asymmetric information. When you are going to get a dog, you can't interview the dog (laughs) and say, (laughs) you know, please tell me about your characteristics. Are you going to be a couch potato? Or are you going to play ball? Do you like my soon-to-be-born child? Uh, These are questions that are difficult, difficult to assess, which make this problem More challenging as well. Individuals may acquire a dog from from a breeder, some of which we might think are responsible, engaging Mm. in good ethical behavior, uh, some of whom we might actually think are very much not responsible, going down the extreme side more along the lines of what people in the animal rescue community would call puppy mills. You might go to your local animal shelter uh, to acquire a new dog. Or you might uh, partner up with a animal rescue group, which you often can think of as a series of foster homes uh, for dogs. But there's this source, which actually a substantial, anywhere from I think around a quarter to a third of individuals acquire their dog from, and this is what we call the informal market. This might happen, you had a neighbor who needed to rehome their dog, or they had a litter of dogs, or you heard about a dog from a colleague or a friend, maybe you went on eBay, Pets Classified, or Craigslist, and that's how you found your dog. The challenge with this informal sector in particular is it's difficult to tell the good actors from the bad actors. And so what I mean by that is that there are individuals due to a variety of reasons perhaps they encountered some health shock that means they no longer can care for their dog, or they lost their job so they no longer can provide the financial support needed to have a dog, they need to find a new home for their dog. So we want to help those people find a new home for their dog. That's a very, that's a clearly good thing to do in society. There's also people who want to pretend that they need to rehome their dog, but in fact are just instead trying to profit off of the sale of a dog. These, again, go back to this idea of of puppy mills. They might mass-produce puppies, and they'll mass-produce puppies um, at the expense of their health and well-being, and then they'll say, I have this eight-month-old puppy or this eight-week-old puppy that I need to rehome. But since it's considered best practice in this informal market to charge an adoption fee, that's why we have this incentive for these bad actors to enter the market.
1: So how did Wagaroo uh, get around that?
2: It was a mechanism design question, right? So how can we how can we figure out the good actors from, from the bad actors? It's a really difficult question. Uh, so historically what the animal rescue world has done is there's a series of red flags. If someone doesn't let you come to their home, perhaps that should cause you to question certain types of breeds or like designer breeds are gonna mm. be more likely to be from puppy mills than say like a mixed breed, um, all of these things. But very very costly for the consumer to figure out who the good actors and bad actors are in a lot of cases impossible that you just you just don't know the true background story here so what we did at wagaroo is we created what was called our family to family program if you needed to rehome your dog you were welcome to participate in our family to family program following best practice we also allowed you to charge an adoption fee so the individual who is acquiring the dog from you? We think maybe values the dog more because they're willing willing to pay. That's one line of logic, but you are not allowed to personally receive that adoption fee. So we effectively served as an intermediary, where you could charge the adoption fee, but the adoption fee went to us to Wagaru, and was then used for one of two things. One was used to fund our fund our website. We were a nonprofit organization. Or two, we reallocated it to local animal shelters and rescue groups. So
1: it's about incentives.
2: It's about incentives. So what we did is if you're a, if you're a bad actor, you just want to rehome your dog in quotes uh, because you want to profit, you have no incentive to be in our family-to-family program because it's impossible uh, to profit from this. And it turned out that once we introduced that mechanism, uh, we no longer had any difficulty in, or we had no longer really had the need to try to screen out the bad actors from the good actors. Only the good actors were remaining.
1: So you also mentioned, though, that um, Wagaroo has dissolved. It's done its good. How How is that good news that um, it was here for one brief shining moment or maybe several moments?
2: Yeah, this is a wonderful question which loops back to a lot of my other work as well. So in the nonprofit space, you're normally trying to achieve some social good. Uh, So the social good that Wagaroo was trying to achieve is we were trying to help this informal market in terms of separating out these good actors from these bad actors. Now, when we started, there were no organizations, although we talked with many of the leaders in the field, that were willing to do this. What happened uh, somewhat recently is one of the big players in the field, which is an organization called Adopt a Pet. So this is one of the big online sites where you can go to find dogs in need of homes. They essentially created a family to family program mm-hmm. uh, that implemented this similar mechanism that we had as well, meaning that they are, of course, better suited than us. They immediately had scale to be able to do this. The idea we have faith in and it seems to be working well for them. So that means there's no longer any reason for us to exist.
1: So you introduced this element, this feature, and talk about going to scale and uh, adoption in both senses of the, of the word. That's a terrific story on a, on a gloomy day. So thank you very much for joining us Christine, this has been a lovely thing to talk about philanthropy and also to talk about your
0: startup. Great. Let's remind people about how they can chat with us and with their fellow listeners on our Negotiation 360 website.
1: Well, it's not just the chat that they can have with us and other listeners, but there are other resources uh, on the site. Um, You can find my Negotiation 360 self-assessment and best practice app. There are links to online courses, and we're putting up articles that you and I have written together and maybe some others as well. So there's lots of stuff on agile negotiation
0: and adaptive leadership. Much of it is free. We've even simplified the URL for podcast listeners. Here's how to find us. Just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's n360.expert and you'll find us.